An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, our guest is Bruno De Alma, the founder and former CEO of asset management company Global X. Bruno grew Global X from zero to $10 billion in assets and an ETF force before selling it in 2018. Today, Bruno is following twin paths. One is conventional. He's an investor and a board member for financial technology companies. The second's a bit different. He's also focused on growing his own consciousness, as well as writing a book about spiritual technology to help people apply learnings from mindfulness masters as diverse as the religious, Moses, Jesus, Lao Tse, Buddha, and Muhammad, to the scientific, Thomas Anderson and Albert Einstein, doctors Hans Rosling and David Hawkins, psychologist Steven Pinker, and even the technologic Apple founder Stephen Jobs. So even if you're one of those people who dislike things that are touchy-feely, or if you're the opposite, a person who thinks finance has no soul, keep listening. Bruno promises to be a fascinating guest for all. Welcome, Bruno. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much, John. It's really, really nice to be with you today. So what's your origin story? Where'd you grow up? How'd you get into finance? And how did you become the person you are? I grew up in Madrid, Spain. I was the middle one of, of five children, so a big family. And uh, my parents were pretty progressive back in the 70s. In Spain, they they somehow had this um, understanding that we were going into a more globalized world, and so they really encouraged us to to learn languages, to travel. If we had the opportunity, we traveled a lot with them. And when I had the opportunity to join this undergrad program that would do a couple of years in in Madrid and a couple of years internationally, I, I jumped on on that. It was a business undergrad. And after my first year, I did an internship at an audit firm, which was meaningful uh, for me because the culture of the firm was very backward, even though it, it was Arthur Anderson, a very large American firm, but of course it was the, the Spanish subsidiary. And it was this culture that just didn't really encourage the participation and the ideas from employees. It, it was this these sausage factory, if you want. And I just had these knowing inside of me that I could not work in Spain. I had to leave and somehow I had the, um, the idea that I had to work in an Anglo-Saxon country. I just thought if I work in, in the UK or the US or Australia, this is going to be better. I, I don't know why and I don't know how it's going to be better, but it's going to be better. And so fast forward to I finished my, my studies, my third year of university, which I did in Germany, my fourth year in McGill in Canada. And I found a job as a consultant in, in New York City. And that job was a blessing too, because it actually took me to work in maybe eight to 10 different countries around the world, spending months, months at a time in these different places. 
And I mention all of these because I think that this global perspective and certainly a perspective where I have a pretty good understanding of the U.S. culture and a reasonable understanding of the American culture, it really gives me a perspective that allows me to see things in a way that it's maybe more difficult to do when you are born and raised with just one culture and, and don't have um, the contrast of different uh, modes of thought that that I do think I have. So you work as a consultant, and I know you then work as um, head of structured product at a, another finance firm. So you obviously seem to have morphed into finance, but you decide to leave and start your own thing, Global X. Why? And how did you decide to start it? Well, unfortunately, uh, well, actually, I should say uh, retrospectively, fortunately, I didn't decide to leave. I was fired. Uh, I didn't have much of a choice on the matter. The company I was working for, Radian, was hit left and right with a financial crisis. And my entire department was, was let go. And I had an opportunity at the time to go work uh, for an investment bank as a strategist. But a friend of mine had a broker dealer with a lot of uh, Latin American clients. And his Colombian clients were buying this financial product, which was, which was a disaster. It was a structure note of only one security, which was the only Colombian ADR that existed at the time. And he just was puzzled, you know, why are my, why are my clients buying this product and what are they trying to achieve? And so he really talked to them and whiteboarded the best solution for the exposure that they were trying to get. And he thought, you know, an exchange traded fund, an ETF for the entire Colombian equity market that's diversified, it's liquid, it's, it's more cost-effective, it has a good tax structure. This would be a much better product for my clients. And so what he did is he went to ISERS at the time, which had the, the largest lineup of uh, single country ETFs. And he said, would you bring to market, please, a Colombia ETF for my clients? And whoever he talked to at ISERS, uh, which was BGI at the time, said, we would never do a Colombia ETF. And so here he was, you know, I think there's demand for this product. I know there's demand with my clients. I know that the largest provider would not uh, come to market with that product. Maybe I do that. And uh, of course you can build a business off of one product, but we worked on a business plan and tried to understand the marketplace. And we thought that there would be enough niche single country exposures to start, you know, a small, little business for a couple of us, maybe not something too exciting for Goldman Sachs. And so, you know, it solved a client need. We saw opportunities for other such products. And I already had the entrepreneurial bag on me when I was a teenager in Spain. I started um, uh, a tiny business called Churroba, which is uh, which is almost like churrogo. Churros are these fried dough, delicious dough that is very, very healthy. And, uh, and it's a staple of, uh, of Spanish breakfast. And so I was delivering that to, to people's homes over the weekends. And, uh, anyway, I thought this was a good point in my time where I could take the entrepreneurial risk. I didn't have children. I had some money saved up. And so we, we decided to, to go after and build Global X. I, I love the comparison of, uh, churros, which are I call them Spanish donuts, fried dough with some sugar on them. And, and I assume you also gave them with the nice bitter hot chocolate because you can't have churro without, without chocolate. And Absolutely. we'll go from there to, you know, cutting edge financial technology. And of course, <laughs> there's no difference between the two, right? I guess entrepreneurial mindsets are entrepreneurial mindsets. But it's interesting. You start with this niche product and ultimately 
Global X was renowned for niche products. I mean, you did, as you did in Colombia, one for the Nigerian economy. You did one for lithium and battery technology, for example. So let me ask an investor and market structure question. What distinguishes a niche product that's useful for investors, such as those who listen to this podcast, from one that's simply a bad idea and it's being pushed by a company to gain assets because it's a fad? And I'll give you an example. I'm old enough to remember a lot of people losing money in what were then trendy TMT funds, technology and media funds, some of which were levered during the late 1990s. And it just, it was like buying tulips during the bubble. We were going to buy TMT funds during the bubble. Um, and they were sold and people bought billions of them and lost billions of dollars. So how can an investor distinguish between niche funds like those Global X created to serve diversification purposes or to gain exposure to certain parts of the market and those that are just marketing gimmicks? One of the things in which we thought about how to structure and build these thematic investing products was, is the, is the theme a long-term secular investment theme that has a real investment thesis behind it. And sometimes you see products that just are more like a trade, you know? So for example, recently there was a, a SPAC ETF that came to market and I, I'm not quite sure what it does, what the investment proposition is. There certainly looked like a trade, you know, there was a point in time where these things were, were hot and interesting and then it went away. And so that may, may be an example of that. I think the other thing that's a little bit more difficult for investors to see, but it's even more important because it's less obvious is do you, can you get representative exposure with the existing public stocks that is sufficiently focused on the theme? So for example, two themes that, that I like, one is quantum computing, although we're very early on that uh, process, but it could be a very disruptive technology. Another one is the space exploration. There are ETS that uh, claim to give exposure to both of these themes, but they're really, um, those ETS, if you look at them, they just don't provide exposure to those things because there are just not enough publicly traded companies that are sufficiently focused and derive sufficient revenues from those things. So unfortunately, it's a little nuanced. And in answering your questions, how can investors sniff these things out? That the best way to do it is to dig and look at the exposures and the composition of the funds. Maybe a derivative way to do that if an investor doesn't have the time, it's just to look at the issuer. You know, there's some issuers that are very, very good and very thoughtful as to how they structure their products. And I would say most of the large ETF issuers fall in that category. So I would focus on quality issuers. Global X grew incredibly quickly. And clearly the thoughtfulness with which you created ETFs was part of it. Was there anything else that was part of the secret sauce that made it so successful? Probably the single biggest approach and focus that made us successful was our client centricity. So we were humble enough, both me and my partners came from finance, but both from outside of asset management. So we knew that we didn't know. And, uh, and so we were humble and we were curious. And so we would meet with every client and prospect and investor that we could talk to. And we would ask them about ETS, what they thought about ETS, how they used ETS, if they use them at all in their investment process how it fit into their 
portfolios and importantly, what they were missing and what they were lacking or what wasn't working. And so not surprisingly, uh, people that were constructing portfolios for their investors um, knew better than we did what they needed. And so a lot of our ideas really were predicated on ideas that our clients share with us. And so we were very focused, not only from a product development perspective, but from a manufacturing servicing uh, perspective on providing really good outcomes for, for our clients. As we noted, you sold Global X in 2018. And since then, um, you've started FinRebel, through which you invest in financial technology startups. First off, I have to tell you, FinRebel is just a cool name, and I want to know how you picked it. But secondly, um, your investments include a mortgage processor and a business that charge, um, changes how vendor onboarding is done, among others. Is there a unifying theme or a value proposition to what you've chosen to become involved in? Yeah, so on the name, I was talking about client-centricity. I feel like our industry, the financial services industry, is just not sufficiently focused on our customers and customer outcomes. And, and it's not, it's a broad generalization, of course. There's some companies that are very good at that. But it, it's, it's not unique to our industry. There are other industries like healthcare that are like that. And they tend to be industries that are heavily intermediated, you know, in asset management you're so heavily intermediated that you're not even talking to the ultimate customer. You're talking at least one or two layers behind that. And so I like the name Thin Rebel because in some ways the companies that we focus on and that we invest in are companies where their biggest part of their ethos is customer centricity. Most of them are in finance. Most of them are in technology. So they're fintech companies. Uh, but we also look at other sectors like um, education technology or digital health, for example. So the other thing that you're doing is you are writing this book. It's not exactly a finance book, um, Spiritual Technology, a short book, I, which I've had the pleasure of reading through the first two of the three parts. I call it a book about consciousness, spirituality, and humanity. Before we get into the substance, how'd you come to write this book? And, and then what is it all about? It's certainly very different than, than what I've been doing professionally, but I, I've been on my own spiritual journey maybe for about a decade. And I must say that leading and managing Global X was probably what started me down that process. You know, when I moved from being what, what was considered throughout my career, a good manager to when I when I think I started to become a leader, which was when I really started to think about my employees and, you know, what made them tick and really had to think about ultimately humanity, you know, like what's behind that and what are motivations. And, and I had a synchronistic process, um, some of it around one of the products that we launched, our conscious companies, ETF, which a client of ours really pushed us to bring to market. And in that process, I made, met this incredible individual called Joseph Javorsky, who wrote this book called, uh, called Synchronicity. And I hired him as a coach on the spot and we worked together for a year. And that started to unlock a lot of things for me. And I started to notice in a way that was not faith-based, but was experiential, that the way my life was unfolding was you know, for lack of a better world, was supernatural. There was something else at work 
there was a higher power and I was a participant of a much bigger picture that was happening. And in that process, which frankly, we were all part of, I wanted to understand, of course, I'm a thoughtful person, I'm a curious person, and I'm very analytical. So what's happening, but more importantly, how do you, how do you operate your life in a way that facilitates these, these what, what Joseph Jaworski calls predictable miracles? And there are certain activities that you can do that, that if you start really focusing on them, you, you experience your life more in that flow. And if you stop doing it, you, you shut down that flow. So drinking alcohol is a good example. If I start drinking alcohol, I shut the flow pretty quickly. So one of the things I decided to do was to read the stories and the lives of the great masters, so starting from very far back, you know, 5,000 years ago with Krishna, to Moses, to Zarathustra, Jesus, Mohammed, all the way to modern times, let's say, a Gandhi. And, and, and more than the doctrine, how did they live their lives? What did they actually do? And if you focus on that, you start seeing that, you know, it's easy to get lost in, in the flashy parts of their lives, you know, and their miracles, right? Moses parted the Red Sea or Jesus walked on water. But it's easy to miss other things that the scriptures talk about, such as Jesus would spend the entire day curing and healing people. And then the next morning he would, we would come very early um, before sunrise and would find a place in solitude and he would pray and meditate. And so I started noticing that not only the, the commonalities and the doctrine, I mean, these guys at the end of the day are talking about the same things, but also the commonalities of how they live their lives. So if Jesus thought that it was important for him to pray, you know, maybe I should do that uh, or I should take some cues from that. And so I started writing a book really about the stories of these individuals and their common practices. And in the process of doing that, I was guided to find a saint from the 12th century, a mystic called St. Peter of Damascus, uh, which is one of the so-called desert fathers that really started what we think of today as monasticism. And he, on his book, uh, laid out how the spiritual process works in, in a very modern way, in a way, in a very analytical way, you know, these drives to these, that drives to that. And, and this is how the machine works to use the sort of rate value uh, terminology, you know, this is how the spiritual machine works. And so the book is, has two parts. One is the spiritual process from Peter of Damascus. I'm not really the author. I'm just bringing it to life um, of how the machine of the spiritual process works. And then the second part is the spiritual technologies. What are the practices that we can all apply in our daily lives to really effectively operate through that spiritual map or spiritual process so that we can all grow in our level of consciousness. I want to go back to where you started, Angela, with synchronicity. Um, I think you define synchronicity um, not as the album by the police in the 1980s, but, but as an understanding that there are a bunch of coincidences that actually have a through line to them around your life. And I, when I read what you wrote, I took from it, you don't have to necessarily believe in a higher power dictating fate, but even if you just recognize these, you can project onto them a more meaningful understanding of what you've done that, that sometimes is just lucky and being in the right place. And, and what management consultants would call situational awareness that you make the right choice because you're aware of what's out there. 
is that a fair definition of your definition of of synchronicity? Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's it's really not my de- definition. So Carl Jung came with that with that concept. And it, yes, these are think of them as coincidences that are incremental. So one leads to the next, that leads to the next, and they're directional. They're not aimless. They're going in a certain direction. And so an exercise that's worth doing for for everybody is to reflect on your life, you know, to go back to that question. That is such a great question, John, that you start your podcast with, which is, you know, what made you the person that made you? And really think through important inflection points in your life that that you chose to do maybe proactively, maybe driven by intuition-driven decisions. Sometimes that drive, that life brought to you, like um, me getting fired from Radiant, which I, if, it, if it hadn't happened, which was devastating at the time, I would have never started Global X. And so think through those inflection points and start to see, is there a through line? And what you will inevitably find out is that when life becomes complicated and, and you're very much out of flow, this is life telling you, you should pivot to use a startup term. And when life becomes easy, you know, we sometimes dismiss things that come to us really easily because they just, they're just easy, right? We didn't work for them. And so we dismiss them and maybe we don't value them. And we should actually value those things more because when life is in flow, it actually becomes um, very easy. Yeah, let's talk about how this affects individuals, particularly individuals in finance, a field you're very familiar with. Most of us find it pretty all-consuming. And though you're a fintech investor and board member, you're writing this book after you sold your business. Is there something about the day-to-day life in finance which discourages mindfulness? Is it possible to have both while we're, you know, involved staring at screens all day long and or in any exceptionally demanding field, I don't mean to single out finance, because as you point out, it, and clearly it is, but I want to know how, as you point out in the draft of your book, Albert Einstein was in touch with a holistic intellect, including intuition and mindfulness, as well as religion, I should mention. Yet, as you also wrote, quote, focusing on your own growth and consciousness is not a passive undertaking. It takes committed effort to change one's consciousness, end quote. So what advice do you have to those of us who are still working day-to-day, I won't say nine-to-five because these fields aren't nine-to-five, but in a field like finance full-time or medicine or something that is a profession and therefore somewhat overwhelming and still want to more fully realize who we are? I think, and I talk about this in my book, we, we need to start with a recognition of the fact that we're, we're trying to do something very difficult and we need to be compassionate to ourselves. We're operating in this ape body that we're giving with all, all of these desires and uh, we're operating, we're social beings. And so we're operating in environments, whether it's finance or other high pressure job situations have an ethos to them. We're social beings and we want to belong and we want to be loved and be liked. And so, you know, starting with the recognition of we need to be compassionate with the difficulties. Absolutely. We can grow into very high conscious beings in any field. And there's certainly things that we can do. The first thing that I had to do was to change wasting time. So if I think about, you know, my old self, I would come home 
uh, exhausted from work and just jump on the couch and put some mindless TV or Netflix on and, uh, and quote unquote, disconnect and unplug, but it does nothing of the sort. And so, you know, in, in today's version of that would be social media. I mean, if you look at the statistics of the amount of time that people spend between uh, watching shows and social media, it's an enormous amount of time. So when we say we don't have time, we actually have a lot of time. Just think about, you know, going to your phone and look at your day and how much time you spend on your phone doing certain things that are not productive, frankly. And so uh, the first recommendation would be regain time that you actually have. Uh, and then use your time in things that are actually helpful for you. So uh, whether are things like the types of things that we can learn from Buddha and Jesus, you know, spend time meditating maybe in the morning as soon as you wake up. One of the things that all of these people did, which is really interesting, is they all spend some time in nature, call it, you know, Jesus or Moses or Muhammad, you know, 40 days in the desert fasting. And it changed the arc of their, of their lives. They, they came out of those situations with a new ethos. And so that's something that we, I would encourage everybody to do, to basically do a retreat in nature for as much time as you can uh, set for it. And you do it. There's a friend of mine, John Milton, who's an incredible individual that does these programs. Uh, it's called Way of Nature. And so I would encourage anybody that has the ability to take some vacation time to do that. And then in, in how we live our daily lives, I would say, just be kind to everybody without exception and look for opportunities to bring that into your job. And so be kind to your colleagues, be kind to your customers, think about how through your work, you can be more customer centric and add value to your customers. I mean, there's all sorts of things that we can do. And these things are not complicated. What's complicated is creating new habits and prioritizing. And so if you can do that and be mindful about it, that's why these things take committed effort because you have to change certain things that you maybe love. You know, I'm out of social media because it adds no value to me, but uh, those types of things are difficult and you have to make decisions. Let's finish with some uh, quick questions and answers. How do you relax? Spend time in nature. What music do you listen to? I, I know your wife is a professional uh, violinist. I assume you listen to her, but tell us about that and anything else. I'm a big music lover. Music has been a big part of my life for a long time. And I'll tell you, it's just strange as I've been going through this process. I am a lot less, just like I'm not that interested in watching movies and TV shows, I find myself listening to a lot less music. And the music I listen to is music that in the past I would consider pretty boring, you know, acoustic, spiritual, you know, some of it pretty old music from a Hildegard von Bingen or an Allegri. So, so my musical taste, taste is, is becoming, it's almost like quietness, you know, it's becoming more and more boring, you know, and so the music is almost disappearing. What are you reading right now? I'm reading this story of Joan of Arc from Mark Twain, who Mark Twain considers his masterpiece. And it's, it's, one of his books that is, is almost not known. And the story of that woman, John of Arc looks, um, I mean, if we, if it wasn't as well documented as it was, we, we would think it was made up because that, that woman was just unbelievable. If you could be on vacation right now, where would it be? Israel. Why? 
Um, I've never been to Israel. I have a lot of friends there and it's a combination of all of my passions. FinTech, it's an incredible, it's, it's a technology startup nation and spirituality. I mean, I can't wait to be in Jerusalem at the crossroads of so many incredible spiritual masters and, and, and religions. Last question, although you may have answered it earlier, but if you could magically speak into everyone's ear, what would you tell them? I would remind people that they're literally a walking, living miracle and would urge them to celebrate life and, uh, and really honor this unlikely miracle by how they design and, and they live their lives so that it is truly their greatest work of art. Thank you. You've been listening to Bruno de Alma, the co-founder of Global X Funds. And as you've heard, um, someone who is equally thoughtful about himself and the rest of us as humans as about capital markets, ultimately a very um, affirming and positive conversation. And I hope that I remember it the next time I am overwhelmed by my day-to-day and can try to relax and, in your words, find the flow. Thank you, Bruno. Thank you so much, Sean. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John Lukonik, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor Ohingasa, John Lukonik, executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.